Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, think about this. As you're listening to this, we are 53 weeks away from the 2024 general election. I can't believe it, and you probably can't either. But all I want to say is thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for participating in the Pro-Democracy Coalition. And please go to jointheunion.us and lincolnproject.us and sign up for our updates, how you can get involved. Be big, everybody. Be your own bullhorn. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by McKay Coppins, an award-winning author and staff writer for The Atlantic, where he covers politics, religion, and national affairs. His latest book is Romney, A Reckoning, biography of Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, which is available wherever fine books are sold. He normally hails from Washington, D.C., but today he's coming to us from what it looks like cloudy and cold Boston, Massachusetts. McKay, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Let me start here. You begin the book by describing the townhouse that Mitt Romney lives in. And it sounds like a very nice home, but also a very lonely place. You note that he's set up basically a dining table or a table, I should say, in the dining room where he's got a giant television strapped to the wall and he eats ketchup covered salmon sandwiches, which sounds unappetizing to say the (laughs) least. But for a man who's been married to his high school sweetheart for as many years as he has. He's got five sons and innumerable grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. This sounds like the saddest bachelor pad one could describe in print. (laughs) He is incredibly lonely in Washington. When he leaves Washington, he has a rich family life and a great marriage and a rich spiritual life. But in Washington, he does not have a ton of good friends. And this was especially true when I first started working on the book and interviewing him. This was in, you know, spring of 2021. He was kind of a pariah in his own party. He didn't have a lot of friends in his caucus, you know, still wasn't really a Democrat. And so he was kind of just, you know, living this sad, isolated existence where he's trying to do what he thinks is right and realizing that it's not winning him any allies or friends in Washington at all. I will say, I think it kind of worked to my advantage in some ways because there were days where I would, you know, I met with him almost every week he was in Washington. And there were days where I would finish my questions and kind of close my laptop and he'd be like, so what are you reading lately? You know, are you, are you watching any good shows? Like he, he almost seemed like he liked the company and that for a biographer, that was very helpful. I have to imagine so, because the nature of being a biographer, and I talked to you a little bit about this right before we went on air, is that you're going to write a book about your subject, knowing that your subject won't like everything you put in it, but that 
if you do a fair and honest job of telling this individual story, that even if they disagree with you a little bit, at least they'll be okay with the overall outcome. But also, yeah, you gave them somebody to talk to who wasn't like, how dare you did this today? How dare you did that today? Right? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I do think that so much of his political life in the Trump era has been defined by either the right being mad at him or some people on the left feeling like he's not doing enough or not doing what they want him to do. That It probably was maybe a bit of a relief to have a writer there who's just kind of like, patiently non-judgmentally listening to him you know and there was i mean a lot of our interviews were him sort of unburdening himself and kind of thinking through things in real time out loud and that's i think what makes the book so interesting is that it's you know i would love to take credit as a writer but he really was in a very introspective soul-searching mood through a lot of our conversations over the course of two years and i think that comes through in the book well, and so much of what's included are excerpts from his journals. He took these copious journals. I think, did that start during the 08 campaign or the 12 campaign? The 12 campaign is where he was kind of most meticulous and in, in taking almost daily journal entries. And as you noted, you know, his father, George Romney, who had been an auto executive in Michigan, had been governor of Michigan, was laid low by a gaffe McKay about the Vietnam War and saying he felt like he had come home brainwashed, which made such a splash then which nowadays given all of the things that make news like that wouldn't even make the paper nowadays right that he was always worried about on the campaign trail saying the wrong thing which ultimately in 2012 we know with 47 percent ultimately happened but in his journals you know if you were going to ask chat gpt to draw you a picture of a united states senator it would be mitt romney and so you see, and, you know, he's very thoughtful, even in his remarks and, you know, during the speeches he gave during the impeachment things, very heartfelt, very, again, intellectually, you know, he didn't just go out on the fly and do this. But then you see in his journal entries that, you know, just almost like the letters of a John Adams or somebody from a different time, you know, the thoughts that he wishes he could express, but only had, you know, his iPad or his journal or whatever it was to give them. And he's very funny. He's much funnier than I think people give him credit for. He's much more hot tempered, I think, in some cases than people would give him credit for or, or blame him for, because he has that mean of almost total control in public. Yeah, I describe him in the book as a walking amalgam of prep school manners and Mormon niceness and like the the kind of practiced cool of like the finance world, you know? So in public, he has really defined his persona as somebody who's very in control of his emotions. Right. Almost stoic in nature. Yeah. Disciplined and stoic and, and careful. And his journals are really where he vents. And it, it's almost a cathartic experience for him. In the 2012 campaign, this comes through especially clearly where he will, you know, get back from a long day on the campaign trail to a hotel room, uh, in some, you know, swing state. And he just takes out his iPad and he just vents all of his frustrations, his judgments of the various, you know, Republican primary candidates he's running against or Barack Obama. And he kind of lets loose there. And then buttons himself back up and gets ready to go back into the public. But the fact that he gave me his journals was one of the first indications to me that he was really ready to kind of unburden himself. Because 
I told him at the outset that I only wanted to do this book if he felt like he was ready to be fully candid. And he almost took that as a challenge. And I remember just a few weeks into the process, getting a text from him while I was at church saying, check your mail, your email. I sent you something that might be interesting before our next conversation. It was just hundreds of pages of his journals. And it it just showed that he really was not worrying about his political position anymore or his place in the Republican firmament. I don't know at that point that he had decided he wasn't going to run for re-election. In fact, I think he was still leaning toward it. But he really had entered this kind of new liberated stage of his career where he wanted to just get everything out there. Yeah. And I want to come back to legacy as a theme in a minute, but I want to get to this. So in full disclosure, I interviewed with Romney and Mrs. Romney and Spencer's Wick in late 2006. I had just come off the Arnold Schwarzenegger campaign as deputy manager there. I went to Boston. I met with Beth Myers to interview to be a deputy campaign manager there. Candidly, the campaign structure didn't make sense to me as someone who'd sort of grown up in it. And, and so I ended up, as many of my friends did from that campaign, going to work for Senator McCain. But I found them incredibly engaging and char- very charming in person. And then I only saw him, at least in the the six months I was with McCain in 2007, he was our opponent, like the Seamus thing. Like we laughed about that. The dog, there's a story of Romney puts a dog carrier on top of their car. The dog has this horrific bowel accident. He hoses the dog off and they keep going. And like we made hay of that in New Hampshire for weeks. Right. And we just (laughs) laughed with glee about the fact that we'd made poor Seamus the dog, something that I'm sure still he grimaces, either grimaces or laughs about McKay. But I do want to say that his political education, starting from his dad and then as he ran for Senate against Teddy Kennedy, was one of a candidate who was willing to learn. He did learn as a candidate. No question. I mean, if you look at how he progressed as a political candidate from, you know, that first Senate campaign to the 2012 election, he had clearly sharpened his skills. He got better on the campaign trail. But the reason I think he learned and and got better was because he, like a lot of very successful people, has an extremely high tolerance for doing things he finds unpleasant. <laughs> um, and, you know, he he never really liked campaigning. He didn't like the debate format. During mock debates, Beth Myers told me about how he would explode in anger and throw his, you know, notes on the floor. Like, he hated all of that stuff. But he was so determined to get good at it that he just kept putting in hour after hour after hour, you know, practicing and going over the briefing materials. And, getting up to speed on these various issues. And so he did get better. But I think that he always struggled on the campaign trail because, like you said, his dad, his formative political experience as a young man had been to watch his dad's presidential campaign get derailed by a single poorly chosen word in a radio interview, you know, and I actually think it was a little more complicated than that. But that was the lesson Mitt took. And so he told me his entire political life was shaped by him trying not to say something that would derail his own campaign. And what that means is it's like when they say, you know, when they tell you, don't think of an elephant, what do you do? You think of an elephant. Like what that means is he was always telling himself, don't screw up, don't screw up, don't, don't screw think up. of the elephant. Exactly. And what that means is you're eventually going to do it. And so, you know, the 47% video, or, you know, that's the most famous case, but there were all kinds of little moments during his presidential campaigns where he said something a little tin-eared, a little, Just get, you know, get a, get a loan from your dad or, oh yeah, I've got a lot of friends 
friends who are NASCAR owners, right? Like, I, I mean, I remember these as both an, an opponent and an observer. Yeah. And so it, it, the result was that most people did not get a sense of what he was like at all as an actual person, because he was trying so hard to put himself fit in this box of a Republican presidential candidate that he never felt like he fully fit in perfectly. But I think that's just to put the pause button on Romney for a second. But that always gets the candidates who are attempting to be something other than they are, which is the presidential experience in particular is so denuding of all of that stuff. It doesn't matter how hard you try. And in fact, the harder you try, the more likely you will walk into the bear trap because it is an impossibility to avoid it as opposed to like. You know, I know it sounds like goofy, but like be who you are. Like if you look at, oh, George W. Bush always had the gaffes. Joe Biden said this. Trump is his own universe of it. Right. They were who they were because the process will expose you. But I think in, in Romney's case, it was because he didn't allow that other side of him, the funny, thoughtful side of him to be exposed first, that when it did come out, that was the side that people saw of him. And there were a couple other things that he struggled with in terms of authenticity. One of them was that running in 2008, especially, was trying to get to the right of John McCain and Rudy Giuliani and a bunch of other candidates in the field. Which, in retrospect, wouldn't have been that hard. <laughs> well, true. But, but the thing is, he was presenting himself as this kind of like Reaganite, conservative, almost culture warrior. And there's a fascinating thing that I came across in reporting the book, which was a series of emails back and forth between Romney's various consultants on that first presidential campaign. And this was toward the end of the primaries where it looked like Romney was going to lose and he was about to drop out. So it was recriminations time and everybody was blaming each other for why, why the campaign wasn't working. And, you know, there was a camp in that group that was arguing that Romney had to more deliberately position himself as the heir to Ronald Reagan. And Stuart Stevens actually chimes in. The senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. Yes. It, it, and he chimes in. He, at this point in 2008, he's one of several consultants, eventually becomes kind of Romney's chief strategist of the next campaign. But he chimes in and says the problem with trying to position the candidate as an heir to Reagan is that he's not a movement conservative. And the more that we try to pretend he is, the more we have authenticity problems, right? So that was one thing. It, you know, Romney was conservative. He is still conservative, but he's not a movement conservative. He never identified with the Tea Party. You know, his own political legacy comes from the liberal wing of the Republican Party through George Romney. He didn't, you know, like Barry Goldwater. He wasn't like a, a right wing guy. So when he tried to court those voters, he, it was like he was speaking in a second language. And that came through. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. I've often referenced for our listeners the book What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. And there were times when Romney clearly knew what it took. So when he was running for governor of Massachusetts, he had to get the current governor, Jane Swift, out of the way. 
And he did everything he needed to do. And that was, you know, he's basically like, I'm coming for you. You have a choice to make. And he shoved her out of the race. He muscled her out kind of mercilessly, you know. But the reason that he started that campaign that way is because he had gone through this first campaign for Senate in Massachusetts, where he was kind of, you know, doe-eyed and green and like thought that he would be able to beat Ted Kennedy because he'd heard rumors that Kennedy had lost a step. And Romney was like, well, I'm the finance guy. He had already made a fortune as a, a private equity whiz kid. And so he was kind of like, oh, well, I'll just, you know, tout my fiscal record and voters will see that and I'll I'll be able to give Kennedy a run for his money. And what he found was that Kennedy and the Kennedy machine were extremely powerful and extremely good at what they did. And Kennedy was very sharp elbowed in these debates and on the campaign trail. And so that was an education for Romney. So when he was ready to run for governor uh, about, you know, eight years later, his his immediate decision was, I'm not going to just sit around and wait to get destroyed by the Democratic machine in, in Massachusetts. I'm going to do what I need to do to win this time. And he was he was sharp elbowed himself. He was sharp elbowed in, in the primaries and clearing the field for himself. And then taking on Shannon O'Brien, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, you know, ran a series of like tough, kind of dumb, cartoonish commercials, but that, you know, worked. And that's, you know, he he wanted to win. So he's not like this guy that's kind of above politics. He definitely was willing to roll up his sleeves and do the sometimes undignified work of winning campaigns. Well, and that's, again, what it takes, which is being willing to do the thing either A, you don't want to do or B. The other guy isn't willing to do. And you talk about the donors. You talk about meeting with Gingrich, Santorum, which the description of what Santorum asks for is just just makes him even more loathsome a character to me, if that was even possible. I just have to say my favorite Romneyism in his journals, because throughout his journals, he describes all of his Republican uh, primary candidates. And the way he describes Rick Santorum is sanctimonious, severe and strange. Right. Which is what everybody else knows about him, too. But, you know, that was part of it, which is, you know, you have to go meet with these people. And then ultimately, of course, there's Donald Trump that appears. You know, you got to go to Vegas. You got to do this. And he's like, I don't know, you know, because, of course, the guy then was a carnival barker. Yeah, no, I mean, and in 2012, you know, Trump had been becoming a right-wing political celebrity by floating these conspiracy theories about Barack Obama. He was the birther guy, right? What's funny reading those journals is that when I think it's Spencer Zwick, his chief finance guy, first comes to him and says, you need to let Donald Trump endorse you. Romney's immediate instinct is to kind of laugh at it. And he was like, there's no way I'm going to like that. I'm not doing that. I'm not meeting with him, not soliciting his endorsement. I'm not standing on the stage with him because he knew Trump was ridiculous. He had actually known Trump for a long time by that point. I write about their first meeting in the 90s. They've got me on 140,000 a month. It's amazing. Romney spent this like weird, surreal uh, weekend at Mar-a-Lago with a few other people. And Trump, yeah, what you just referred to. Trump at one point pulls him aside and says that his bank is loaning him $140,000 a month to keep up appearances because otherwise, you know, they're never going to get their loan back because they've loaned so much money to Trump. A very smart person once said, if you're going to owe a bank money, owe them a lot of money because <laughs> then they got to be nice to you. That's exactly right. So anyway, Romney thought of Trump as a ridiculous guy, but the way he rationalized accepting his endorsement at the time was 
he's not a political figure. He's a dopey celebrity. You know, the Democrats have all kinds of dopey celebrities who support them. And if Obama can get endorsed by Kanye West, why can't I get endorsed by the Celebrity Apprentice host, right? It Now, looking back on that, he realizes that Trump was tapping into something among conservative voters that he didn't quite recognize at the time, that the birther conspiracy stuff and the way that Trump acted and the kind of outrageous antics, like it was actually masking kind of an insidious undercurrent on the right that became much more apparent four years later when Trump himself was running for president. You mentioned rationality, and I want to come back to that because that was something that's really woven throughout the book. And and this is earlier in the book when he's talking about, you know, where he's going to be on the abortion issue. You know, is he going to be pro-choice, going to be pro-life? And you write, quote, it didn't feel at the time like selling out. It never really does. Quote, I had convinced myself that I was right, he'd later reflect. I mean, I could have taken a lie detector test. That's the point of rationalizing. You don't have to live with it. And, you know, in this time, McKay, I have had so many friends and former colleagues go over to the Trump side, totally bathe themselves in MAGA. And I always thought to myself, someday they'll wake up. But Romney crystallizes rationalization. Once you've done it, you don't have to feel bad anymore. And there's sort of that, you know, through the book, through his career, through and then ultimately in his time in the Senate, he sees all these people who have rationalized themselves to within an inch of their lives. And it's now like, OK, I've done it. It's not a big deal anymore. The idea of rationalization in politics was the one I actually found most compelling and interesting in writing this book, because he returned to it time and again, both in our interviews and in his journals, right? Because the subtitle of the book is A Reckoning. And Romney really is now at this point where he's reckoning with how his party became what it is now. And he believes, as I think I do, that the road to this moment is paved with political figures who made moral compromises that didn't seem at the time like moral compromises. Mm -hmm. What's the harm in humoring him? Exactly. They convinced themselves it's not that big of a deal. And it's important that I stay in the party. It's important that I win re-election. We can't let the Democrats, uh, you know, get control of the Senate. We can't let them win the White House. They'll pass the Green New Deal. There's a thousand rationalizations, right? And all these people have talked themselves into believing that what they're doing is right because they want to see themselves as the good guy. You know, it's not that they don't have consciences, right? R Romney himself, like that, that was one thing that became clear to me. It's not as if Romney throughout his career was like bracketing questions of right and wrong and sort of setting that aside. He was always concerned with it, but those handful of times that he did rationalize doing something that he now regrets, it was a, a product of him wanting to get right with his conscience while also trying to win. The difference is that Romney reached a moment where he just, you know, he, he was attuned enough to his own moral compass that he wasn't willing to cross the line and, you know, join the MAGA movement or get on board with the Trump train, whatever, you know, term you want to use, where most of his party was willing to do that. And that's how he ultimately became a pariah, I think. But let me ask that question, because I don't want to spend a lot of time during the Trump years, because I think the Senate years are, frankly, more interesting. But he did go to Jean George and interview. I'm going to put that in air quotes. I, I hope that's appropriate and not insulting to interview to be secretary of state, which is a big job. And he laid out his you know four requirements 
you know, he didn't want any silliness. He wanted to dictate foreign policy. He didn't want a bunch of political hacks laying around and he wanted to appoint ambassadors. But he had to have known, McKay, that like either A, this was never going to happen or B, even if Trump said, oh, yeah, sure, that all sounds great. It was going to be a bill of goods. So that is an interesting moment. I think of that as kind of like the last temptation of Mitt, right? <laughs> because that was the last moment where he had the opportunity to sort of sell out his principles and join the Trump administration. You know, Secretary of State is a big job. When we talked about this, I asked him, you know, like, what were you thinking at that point? Because I think most people watching were like, what are you doing? Right. He had been so outspoken against Trump. He told me that there were basically two motivations going on. One was more noble, and it was basically this idea that he felt like there needed to be adults in the room. He saw Trump's election as an emergency. So like a Mattis and, and those. Right, guys. exactly. And, you know, at the time, it's easy to forget this now. At the time, the names being floated for secretary of state were pretty frightening, right? Rudy Giuliani was on that list. <laughs> like, um, And so... Romney felt like, well, if I can get this job, I should probably take it. In fact, he told me that several former secretaries of state, including Hillary Clinton, called him and said, if Trump offers you this job, you have to take it. So there was that part of him that, that it's kind of more noble, public service oriented. But then there's this other part of him. And he admitted to me, I also just wanted the job. I like to be in the action. I like to be at the center of things. Secretary of state is a pretty great job where you can have a lot of influence. So he entertained it. He considered it. He ultimately didn't get it. You know, we can talk about how serious the offer was. Trump and his allies say that they were just trying to humiliate him and it was kind of all one big prank. My reporting actually suggests that's not true. I think they were seriously considering him, or at least some people in Trump's orbit were. In any case, the line he finally wasn't willing to cross is that Trump told him, you can have this job if you retract everything that you said about me in 2016. And Romney was just like, I, that, I, I can't go that far. It's too, that's too ridiculous. No, look, I mean, one, that is a way that Trump often forgives. He's absolutely willing to forgive, at least for a moment. But also, he's more than happy to play Lucy pulling the football out from Charlie Brown, too. Yes, right? that's true. That's true. <laughs> There's no question. But it's also a show of its subjugation. Because it's funny, because when Romney was first told this, I think he was talking to Mike Pence. He was like, well, I'll look absurd. Nobody's going to believe that I didn't really mean that stuff. But the point isn't that anyone believes it. The point is that Trump will have made Romney do this. And he, Romney is now submissive to Trump. That was the ultimate goal. So he decides to run for Senate in the state of Utah, you know, where he obviously had family roots. He had been here in 2002 to rescue the Winter Olympics that year you know, much to the chagrin of some other big families in the state. Now he's in the United States Senate. And, it, you know, for those of us like I grew up on Capitol Hill, McKay, but like I didn't really understand or maybe I'd forgotten, you know, just the it's really like the nerdiest, shallowest clubhouse in the world. Right. And, you know, these lunches they do. And you know, it also reminded me, this is my opinion, not yours. Just what a reptile. Mitch McConnell is. He admitted he didn't like Trump. He knew where Romney was and was willing to let Romney do it. But he's like, but don't you impugn the honor of your colleagues? Like these were all thieves without honor. I was just, I was, I found that fascinating. That like that's what he got reprimanded for a couple of times. 
Yeah, it was actually during an onstage interview with me at the Atlantic Festival where it was right after it was the beginnings of the Zelensky call had come out and the kind of first rumblings of impeachment were happening. And I asked him why he was the only Republican senator who seemed willing to criticize Trump for this call. Romney basically said, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, there is an enormous temptation to do whatever it takes to stay in power. Right. Speaking of his Republican colleagues. And afterwards, McConnell pulled him aside and said, don't impugn the integrity of your colleagues. You know, the thing that Romney struggled with is that over and over and over during the Trump years, he would have Republican Senate colleagues sidle up to him in private and say, hey, I'm so glad that you're out there doing what you're doing, saying what you're saying. I agree with you. I wish I could say the same things as you, but you know, I have a different constituency or I'm up for reelection soon. So you understand. And then they would kind of look at him expectantly as if he was going to be like grateful that they agreed with him. And instead he was kind of repulsed. You know, he was like, what are you talking about? And he told his staff at one point that this happened to him with 12 separate senators (laughs) and he finally developed kind of like a go-to answer when this happened. And he would say, well, you know, there are worse things than losing an election. Take it from me, right? But not to these people, because he notes that, that in that very cloistered world of the United States Senate, and former Congressman Joe Walsh said this is true in the House, maybe it's probably less so, that to these guys, not being in office is death. Romney calls the Senate a club for old men. And sometimes he says it as a joke, but He actually means it. You know, he said he didn't realize until he got to the Senate just how much psychic currency senators attach to their seats. Right. Like a lot of them are wealthy already. They don't need the government salary. They don't need the job. And and, and plenty of them are old enough to retire, but they can't live without the relevance and the power of, you know, their jobs and and literally, you know, for some of them, losing reelection would be akin to dying. And so if that is the situation, they will do anything they need to to get reelected and hold on to the Senate seat and the office and the staff and the trappings. And that's really the last person you want in public service, because by definition, McKay, it means I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to say whatever I need to say. I'm willing to take any vote. I'm willing to cash any check. I'm willing to stroll down Pennsylvania Avenue and bend the knee to Donald Trump however long I need to, however ridiculous the circumstance. And when they say I have to do it for my constituency, it's all a lie. It's not for the constituency. It's for them. And I'll tell you, I have, I mean, Senator Romney is certainly, I think, probably more well-spoken than I am, but I would have like kicked the guy in the pants and said, get away from me, you know, grow a pair or get out of here. If you feel this way, you know, maybe I'll go out and tell everybody. Well, and I think that's why he finally gave me all those journals and, you know, decided to kind of blow the whistle on all this because it drove him crazy having to have these conversations over and over again. And then especially after January 6th, where you saw the kind of most frightening consequences of that kind of thinking, I think that was ultimately why he decided to be so forthcoming with me, because he just couldn't take it anymore. And you open the book with him texting McConnell saying, this is what I've heard. We have to do something. And McConnell doesn't do anything. And as Stuart Stevens, former advisor to Romney and now advisor to us, said, Mitch McConnell went to bed on January 5th, the majority leader of the United States Senate. He woke up the minority leader running for his life. And this is a guy who even in the second impeachment, 
he could have wrangled 17 Republicans. He absolutely 100% could have. But to him, again, either whether or not he, I think it all comes down to his own power. I don't give McConnell any credit for being afraid of the Green New Deal and all this other stuff, which is never going to get done anyway. I think it was just like, if I do this, I won't be in charge. I can't be majority leader and I want to be majority leader. Therefore, I'll go along with it. Again, it's the same rationalization. The guy tried to kill me, yet I'm not going to stand up to him. Well, but there is one other factor here that I think is important, and this is actually one of the more startling revelations to me while reporting this book, is the degree to which fear of political violence factored into the decisions of a lot of Romney's Senate colleagues. He he told me stories about both Republican members of the House and Senate who, in that second trial after January 6th, wanted to vote to impeach or convict Trump and ultimately decided not to because they were afraid for their families or afraid for their own safety, right? And, you know, Romney himself told me stories about being in front of Republican audiences that were booing him and finding himself wondering if any of them had a gun, right? That speaks to the precarious moment we're in as a country that we have elected officials who are making certain political decisions based on fear of physical violence from their constituents. And I don't know how tenable that is for a democracy. I agree on the broader point, but at the same time, when you allow that, not only in the individual, McKay, but also in the collective, you are encouraging said behavior. Well, of course. I mean, this is the don't negotiate with terrorists, right? Like you can't start capitulating to mobs because then the mobs know what they have to do to get what they want. Right. And this is, the, you know, obviously Mitt Romney feels that way. He he was more outspoken than ever against the, you know, Josh Hawley's and uh, Ted Cruz's of the world after January 6th. But it's just not, you know, not all of his colleagues have been able to muster the same courage. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, so let's fast forward. So if you can, in your conversations, you know, the senator would be up for re-election next year, 2024. He decides not to. What's the thinking? You know, when we started this project, my assumption was that there was a good chance he would run for re-election. And he was telling his staff and donors that he was planning to, you know, as time progressed, he became more and more isolated in his party. He did, though, during the, the first two years of the Biden presidency, kind of finally find his group in the Senate. It was, you know, this bipartisan gang of, you know, centrist Democrats and Republicans who were willing to work on legislation. You know, imagine that legislators who were interested in legislating. 
And he actually really enjoyed that work. You know, he worked on the infrastructure bill. He worked on a gun bill, you know, a few other things. He he really enjoyed that work. But he looked around after the 2022 midterms and saw that a lot of the senators that he, you know, felt actually were interested in legislating were either gone or on their way out. Yeah, Portman's gone. Right. Cinema's probably on her way out. There's a handful of the mansion is in jeopardy. Then you also had a situation where the House of Representatives is narrowly controlled by the Republicans, looks completely ungovernable. And he basically said, I don't know how I'm going to be able to get anything done in the Senate, you know, going forward with this situation. My party is under the spell of Donald Trump, who could very well be back in the White House. I have little to no influence in the Republican Party anymore. And there's this other interesting thing going on. I write about this a little that Romney has for most of his life been stalked by premonitions of his own death. And this goes back to he was in this car crash as a Mormon missionary in France, right? where a passenger in the car that he was driving was killed. And ever since then, he's he's had these kind of, you know, thoughts of when he's going to die, you know, all of which is to say he's convinced now that he doesn't have more than 12 years left. Right. Because his dad passed away at 88. Right? His dad passed away at 88. He's the Romney man who's lived the longest of any of them. And, you know, there's a history of sudden heart failure in his family. And he basically told me, if I have 12 years left, I don't want to send six of them sitting in a caucus lunch with J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz not getting anything done. Jesus, I wouldn't spend 12 minutes doing it if I didn't have to. <laughs> um, I'll tell you this. I'm not going to I'm going to not going to mention the name. But last week, one of my kids had their first band performance, sixth grade band performance, McKay, here in Utah. And my wife and I sat down and I, and I looked over it and I recognized this person. I said, I think that's that person. And I'm Googling this particular role that this person had, and, and it was them. I thought to myself, this was a person who had a world-shaping job, responsibility, and they have since retired. And now here they are at noon on a Thursday in a Utah ski town watching their sixth grade grandson play in a band performance that all due respect to the kids sounds like a bunch of geese being strangled. And I thought to myself, this person has it figured out, right? They've been to the mountaintop, but at the end of the day, this on a Thursday afternoon is where they chose to be. It's such an important point because that is really how Mitt Romney sees life, right? He, he told me, you know, how do I look at my life and measure my success? It's not by the elections I won. It is by my relationships with my wife and my kids and my grandkids, right? And I've got to say, I've profiled a lot of powerful people in my career as a writer, a journalist, and a lot of people reach Mitt Romney's stage of life, you know, people who have accumulated a lot of money, power, had, you know, big careers, important careers, and they look around in their mid-70s and realize that their marriage is terrible, they're estranged from their kids, they don't, you know, have a rich family life at all. Or a rich life outside of whatever it is they've spent their career doing right their life and 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 value as a person has been derived entirely from their work and now they're in retirement and they're miserable right i actually went up to lake winnipesaukee in new hampshire where he has his kind of family compound and they do a family reunion every summer and i spent an afternoon there with his family and you can tell that this is a guy who has put in the time to have meaningful deep textured relationships with his family with his wife certainly 
who he adores, but really all of his sons, his grandkids, his daughters-in-law, like they love him in a way that suggests that they actually know him. And, you know, that I, I, that is where his mind is now. He's thinking about his legacy. He's thinking about what he's leaving behind for them and not the next election cycle. I want to spend a minute before we talk about 2024 on legacy, because it clearly matters to Mitt Romney and all of the things you said about his wife and his kids and his grandkids. And does he have great grandchildren now? Yeah, he has two, actually. Yeah, so two <laughs> great grandchildren, right? And he thinks a lot about that. But those same colleagues that seem to have sold out for everything for a job that they don't think they could live without, and if they do, they will be one of those guys or gals who looks around. You know, when we say, you know, history will look back on you, McKay, I don't think a lot of them care. So this is the biggest puzzle to me about the last several years of American politics. Again, I mean, I'm sure there's an element of rationalization going on, but like there are so many people who, if they just stepped back and thought seriously about how their actions are going to be remembered by history, how their obituaries are going to be written, how, you know, their appearance in history books 50, 50 years from now are going to look that they would, they would recalculate what they're doing. You would think, right? But nobody does. I mean, maybe they don't care. Maybe they really don't. I mean, Mitt Romney told me that if there's any lesson to glean from his experience, it, it, it would be that, you know, we need to find a way to get our political leaders to be thinking about what their obituaries will say rather than just the, the current news cycle or election cycle or whatever, right? That if we could get more of them to be thinking in those terms, it would change their decisions and it would incentivize them to follow their conscience, right? I don't know how to do that necessarily, but it doesn't strike me as impossible because there is an element of vanity to that, right? <laughs> like, like you know, pol politicians are vain creatures. We all know that. And, and to a certain extent, all of us are. But you know, asking them to think about their legacies shouldn't be a huge ask because I think a lot of what drives people into public service in the first place is, you know, they have lofty ideas of doing things that will be remembered, right? And Romney hasn't reached a point where that's how he's thinking. You know, he under I think that's why he gave me his journals and, you know, cooperated for this biography. He sees this as a, in some ways, a legacy play, right? But it, it, it just doesn't seem like there are a lot of people thinking seriously about their legacies these days in politics. And I think we're worse off for it. Well, speaking of the legacy of American politics. So as our listeners are listening to this, McKay, we'll be 53 weeks away from the 2024 election. Senator Romney will not be on the ballot. Someone who I would say this Romney's probably the last Republican I voted for um, and very well might be the last Republican I ever vote for, although I live in Utah. So you take that for what it's worth. <laughs> but where do you think he'll be in 2024 politically? Do you think he will be someone like he was in 2016 and, and since then staunchly anti-Trump? Do you think he'll say out loud on a daily basis, Donald Trump shouldn't be president again. I know he has, but do you think he'll say that? Do you think that he and maybe his last true act of political liberation will endorse a Democratic president for reelection? I think there's no question he'll do whatever he thinks he can to stop Donald Trump from returning to the White House. He finds the prospect of a second Trump term deeply alarming. He thinks that the country is already in a pretty fragile place, and he's, he thinks that we 
don't take seriously enough the peril that American democracy is currently facing and that, uh, uh, you know, Trump back in the White House would be terrible. Romney, I think, is going to do what he can to prevent that scenario. But I don't know if, you know, that means an endorsement or, you know, behind the scenes work. In 2016, he gave that famous speech, you know, denouncing Trump. But some of the more meaningful stuff that he really tried to do was, and I report about this in the book, work behind the scenes to try to get Trump's Republican primary opponents to coordinate with each other to deprive him the delegates uh, he needed to clinch the nomination. It didn't work out for a variety of reasons you can read about, but I could see him working behind the scenes to stop that from happening. Um, I certainly think he'll be vocal about the various outrages of the Trump campaign and the things Trump's saying. As for an endorsement, I don't know. I mean, what <laughs> Romney told me, he doesn't really think endorsements make that much of a difference. And he thinks that given his current status in the Republican Party, you know, anyone he endorses probably won't move a lot of Republican voters. But we'll we'll have to see. I'm not ruling anything out. I mean, I report at the end of the book about the friendship that he's developed with Joe Biden. They actually, there's a lot of mutual respect there for each other. They disagree on all kinds of policy issues. But he sees Joe Biden as somebody who fundamentally respects the constitution and respects democracy. And to him right now, that is the most important thing. That and the fact that in Romney's mind, Biden embodies the character of a president in a way that Donald Trump doesn't. And so we'll have to see what he does, you know, in terms of who he backs or who he votes for, but he will certainly be trying to stop Trump. Well, it's a great book. I hope everybody reads it. It's called Romney, A Reckoning. Before I let you go, McKay, what else are you working on right now? Well, trying to figure out the next book. Why don't I put in a plug right now? I would love to write another biography of somebody who gives me all their journals and all their email (laughs) correspondence. So if anybody is listening and has an idea, um, get in touch with me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where can we find you on social media if you still dare to go there? And where can we find your work? You know, I'm still on Twitter or I guess it's called X, just McKay Coppins. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm writing at The Atlantic. I'll be covering the election uh, at theatlantic.com. You can find my author page there and uh, mckayaldencoppins.com for various other exciting news about uh, book events and other projects I'm working on. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on threads at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. And now on Substack, the home front, please sign up read up everything you need to know about what's going on you can find there mckay coppins thanks for joining me and everybody else we'll see you next time thanks again to everyone for listening be sure to follow and subscribe to the lincoln project on apple podcasts spotify google or however you listen don't forget to leave a five-star review to connect with us follow us on twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.